morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. You know, out of all the biblical prophets, Jonah stands in his own category. The whole book of Jonah is one big story. Other prophetic books contain stories, but with Jonah, the entire thing is a narrative. Along similar lines, other prophetic books are made up mainly of the prophet's preaching. As for Jonah, we hardly hear him preach at all. And last, but certainly not least, Jonah is the only prophet we know of to get swallowed by a fish and live to tell the tale. Now, naturally, it's that last part that makes the book of Jonah so well known, so beloved, and maybe even so debated. That unlikely event, nothing short of a miracle, gives this story an almost mythic quality. Though for what it's worth, as people who believe that God spoke the world into existence out of nothing and raised his crucified son from the dead, a man surviving a few days in a fish shouldn't sound all that crazy. But that's another conversation. But even as amazing as his story is, as we read Jonah this morning, we need to be honest about the fact that Jonah isn't necessarily someone we want to imitate. But you know, God still has a way of teaching us about himself and teaching us about ourselves through the story of a less than perfect prophet. So open up to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you need it and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to place ourselves before your word and under your word. I pray that this is not the only time that we encounter your word each week, but there is something particularly powerful about hearing your word on Sunday morning. And so I pray that whether it's me preaching or the rest of us listening, I pray that we would recognize the power, the beauty, the authority of your word that you've given us for our good teach us about yourself teach us about ourselves reveal who you are to us and who you've made us to be by your grace i pray that you would help us grow in knowledge but also help us grow in devotion and affection for you and even for one another as well as a result of reading your word I pray that your spirit would help us understand what your word has to say and that all of this would happen for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this place. Thank you for these saints, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for all in this room today. May what we say and do glorify you. We ask this all in Jesus name. Amen. Well, starting in Jonah, chapter one, verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So who is this guy, Jonah? Well, he's the son of Amittai, which isn't all that helpful because we know basically nothing about Amittai. We do know that he's living around 775 B.C. in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II. That's all according to one verse in 2 Kings. And that's really only the only hard pieces of evidence that we have about Jonah. But interestingly, we can piece together the facts that Jonah is a prophet from Israel who, unlike most of the other prophets in the Bible, was on a wicked king's good side. Now, we don't want to speculate too much, but that might tell us something about Jonah. Being buddies with someone like Jeroboam II is not exactly a good sign. But if Jonah was on the wicked king of Israel's good side, we quickly see him end up on the true king of Israel, God's bad side. Why? We just saw it. Because Jonah boldly, blatantly, and belligerently disobeys God. Jonah arose, all right, but his obedience stops there. Instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah heads in the opposite direction, across the Mediterranean Sea, and ancient Israelites weren't exactly known for their sailing prowess. And you know, as a prophet, you have one job. Obey God. Obey God. Go where he tells you to go. Do what he tells you to do. Say what he tells you to say. But Jonah responds with, I'm a head out. Now, why is Jonah so desperate to avoid Nineveh? Most obviously, it's because Nineveh was the de facto capital of Assyria, a rival national power in that day. But then on top of that, Assyrians had a terrible reputation for cruelty. A stranger would not want to get lost on their turf. Or perhaps Jonah could foresee what would happen some 50 years down the road. Assyria would one day capture the northern kingdom of Israel and exile their people. It was a disaster. Or maybe Jonah just had some unpaid parking tickets. But whatever the reason, Jonah disobeys God and goes to Tarshish, not Nineveh. And in doing so, Jonah effectively resigns his office as prophet. Now, here's the bad news. Jonah is off to a horrible start. But here's the good news. If not for Jonah, then good news for us. This is where the story gets really interesting. The rest of the book basically breaks up into four scenes, neatly divided among the four chapters. And scene one starts with Jonah on a boat. 
Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. What do you know? Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You didn't think that God was going to let Jonah off the hook that easily, right? He wakes up in the midst of a catastrophe. The ship's crew has tried everything to weather the storm. And now all they can do is pray and maybe look for someone to blame. And when the crew casts lots... The ancient equivalent of drawing straws, the lot falls on Jonah. What are the odds? Now, to his credit, Jonah identifies himself as a Hebrew and a worshiper of the one true God. He owns up to the fact that he's the one to blame for this mess and even offers to be thrown overboard in hopes of saving the rest of the ship. And though they were hesitant at first, the crew takes Jonah up on it. They throw him overboard, and the water's calm. Now, we already mentioned a few things that make Jonah unique. But here's one we didn't say. Israelite prophets didn't usually preach to pagans. Prophets were sent by God to their own people, not to foreigners, Maybe that's part of why Jonah dreaded that trip to Nineveh. Preaching to those people was not in his contract. 
But ironically, far away from the hallowed ground of Israel, these swashbuckling pagans call out to the Lord. They fear him. They worship him. And they obey him. And while Jonah may have shown a bit of contrition and a bit of courage on that boat, let's be honest. He hasn't done any of that stuff yet at this point in the story. The pagan sailors come out looking better than him. But before we move ahead, what have we already learned about God? Well, first we learn that God is sovereign. God sends the storm in verse 4. Proverbs 16.33 tells us that though people cast lots, every decision is from the Lord. And like Jonah said, God made the sea. When he wants it to calm down, it does just that. You have to think that those idolatrous sailors learned a valuable lesson about the one true God that day. He and he alone is sovereign. But we also learn that God is just. Again, did Jonah really think that he could get away with this? He of all people, a prophet, should have known better. When the pagan sailors learn that he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord, even they look at him and say, dude, what were you thinking? God will not be mocked. And if the sovereign and just God who made the sea and the dry land tells you to do something, you should probably do it. Now, that's just the first scene. But now the story really picks up steam heading into verse Chapter 2, rather. Verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So God controls not only the storm, not only the casting of lots. He's sovereign over the creatures of the deep. But in addition to his sovereignty... In addition to his justice, we learn in that fish that God is gracious and merciful to sinners. You know, in scene two, deep underwater, in that fish's stomach, Jonah has a lot of time to think. And thankfully, he displays some change of mind. He expresses sorrow and repentance, along with worship and thanksgiving. We see his words in chapter 2, starting in verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. 
When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It seems that Jonah is ready to turn over a new leaf. He's prepared to be the prophet God called him to be. The prophet he should have been back in chapter 1. And God shows him grace and mercy. So we said earlier that God is just. And Jonah was a fool to think that he could so arrogantly disobey God's commands and face no consequences. He learned the lesson of Psalm 139, verses 7 and 12, the highway, the hard way. We read them earlier. Where could Jonah go to escape God's spirit? He could go nowhere to escape God's spirit. He couldn't go to Tarshish and escape. He couldn't go to the bottom of the ocean and escape. He can't escape from God. So Jonah sinned, but God saved him. And while we should absolutely obey God the first time, it's not a bad takeaway from the book of Jonah, but it's also something that none of us does. We should rejoice over the fact that God is gracious and merciful when sinners call on his name. But as we begin scene three, we have to ask, will Jonah's new attitude last? Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. If you look at the beginning of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 3, the words are almost identical. It really helps you see this idea of Jonah getting a fresh start. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Better choice this time around, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them And he did not do it. Believe it or not, Jonah getting swallowed by a fish 
is not the most shocking twist in this story. The most unexpected turn of events comes when the Ninevites repent. In the Old Testament, people don't usually listen to prophets. People ignored Isaiah. They persecuted Jeremiah. God straight up told Ezekiel from day one that his audience would be thick-headed and hard-hearted. But of all people, the Ninevites, from the least to the greatest, immediately listen and obey when they hear this reluctant prophet preach one sentence. That's the most shocking twist in this amazing story. Not some fish. But you know what isn't shocking? God sees. And God relents from judgment on this depraved but repentant city. It doesn't surprise us because we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is just. And we know that God is gracious. But he's not just gracious to people like us. We can get on board with that. I mean, I'd be gracious to me. But God is also gracious to people we would never expect. Think about all the seemingly lost causes that you know. Consider the people you've written off as utterly hopeless. Reflect upon those individuals who you cannot possibly imagine responding to the grace of God. May we pray to see more shocking twists, like the one that we see in Jonah 3. And who knows? Maybe we'll be the preachers that God sends to do it. But as we move to our fourth and final scene, we have to ask, if those people we just mentioned, those lost causes, those utterly hopeless cases, if those people surprise us by responding rightly to God's grace, how will we react? Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. That's nice. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Uh, yeah, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So sadly, Jonah's new attitude from back in chapter 2, was short-lived. Yes, he did, technically, begrudgingly, obey God in the end. And all it took was a catastrophic storm, a near drowning, and a few days in a fish's ribs. But Jonah did eventually obey. But Jonah also had some preconceived notions about how this whole thing would pan out. He'd go to Nineveh, say what he had to say, do his duty, get out of Dodge, and then sit back and watch that wicked city burn. The last thing he expected was for them to repent and God to relent. And as we see in chapter 4, Jonah was not amused. We wondered earlier about why Jonah fled to Tarshish. But now we get a clear answer. Jonah fled because he knew God was gracious. And he did not want those dirty, rotten, stinking Ninevites to experience it. The mere possibility that God might forgive those scoundrels made Jonah get on that boat and head the other direction. The tiniest thought of Nineveh not being destroyed made Jonah want to die. His actions are stunningly hypocritical. His attitude is mind-numbingly callous. Jonah worshipped the God who forgave him in chapter 2. Again, grace is great when God shows it to you. But Jonah seethed with anger when God forgave people like them. Jonah was furious when God killed the plant that was giving him shade. There's a million other ones like it. But he lost no sleep over the thought of 120,000 people made in God's image dying under God's judgment. Jonah's hypocritical actions and his callous attitude are a cautionary tale. Because as one commentator puts it, a little bit of Jonah can exist within us. The book ends with God asking Jonah that question. A few times, actually. Do you do well to be angry? 
we never hear Jonah's final answer. And as we end, we're left with a question that we have to answer. Who are the people we cannot stand the thought of God forgiving? And if or when he does, will we celebrate that or will we grieve? Now, thankfully, God is not like Jonah. Jonah is silly. God is sovereign. Jonah is fickle. God is just. Jonah is bitter. God is gracious. We see God's sovereignty, justice, and grace quite clearly in this amazing story of Jonah. But we also see it, even more resoundingly, in the amazing story of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus referred to the three days that he would spend in the tomb after his crucifixion as the sign of Jonah. May we remember that it's thanks to the resurrected Jesus Christ, the one who is greater than Jonah in every way, that sinners like us, and just as importantly, sinners unlike us, can still experience God's grace today. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this story. Thank you that as we read your word, when we get to the New Testament, your grace and your mercy are not new concepts. We see your grace and your mercy from the very beginning of your word. We see your kindness, your generosity, your patience, your righteousness from Genesis all the way on. We see it today as people at this moment are hearing your word, repenting of sin, rejecting the violence that is in their hands and calling on your name. Lord, I pray that we would respond rightly to that grace that we see permeating every page of your word, that we would respond rightly to the grace that you still show to sinners at this very moment through the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we look at ourselves and as we look at people around us, we would recognize the grace that you've shown to us and recognize the grace that we want to share with others. I pray that we would be generous, that we would be liberal with your grace, that we would extend it and share it with anyone and everyone we come into contact with rather than withholding it for ourselves. I pray that we would not be like the unforgiving servant in Luke 18 who rejoices when he's forgiven, but turns around and refuses to forgive those around him. Help us learn from this cautionary tale and help us extend the same grace to others that you've shown us through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for your justice. Lord, help us reflect those attributes in the world around us, in a world that so desperately needs it. 
We love you. We glorify you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, your spirit, your word, your church. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.